If I could get your attention, we'll start today. We're doing a series called Doctrine for Dummies, as you can see up there on the screen, which is the basic Christian uh, doctrines. Today, we're going to begin a three-part series on the Trinity. And the first part, the first person of the Trinity is God the Father. So today we'll do God the Father. Next week will be God the Son and then God the Holy Spirit. And as we study God the Father, we'll, uh, we'll be talking about the attributes of God. And of course, one of those is the justice of God. And so naturally, I found the movie clip of the justice that Kramer demands. Uh, the joke goes that uh, a young woman brought her fiance home to meet her parents for Thanksgiving dinner. And her after dinner, her mother told her father to find out about the young man. Go in there and check this guy out. So the father goes in and says, uh, so uh, son, what are your plans? He says, well, I'm going to go and be a uh, biblical scholar. Oh, okay, well, that's great, uh, but who's going to provide a nice house for my daughter to live in? And he says, well, God will provide. And who's going to buy her a beautiful engagement ring such as she deserves? He says, God will provide. And children, if you have children, who's going to support the children? God will provide. And he went on down this list of things. So finally, uh, the father goes in to talk to the mother and she says, well, how did it go, honey? The father said, he has no job, no plans, and he thinks I'm God. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like this crowd can relate to that. I don't know. <laughs> All right, uh, the Trinity. The Trinity, obviously, that's a theological term that comes not from the Bible, but from theologians. And it, it has two parts, you know, tri- Unity is what, where it comes from. So it's saying one God in three persons is what the Trinity is. And it's very difficult to understand being limited human beings. A seminary professor told me, deny the Trinity and you'll lose your soul, but try to explain it and you'll lose your mind. <laughs> it, we just can't relate to it. And I think it's like that because of the omnipresence of God. We can't really relate to omnipresent, how one person could be everywhere at the same time. And so the idea that God could be three persons in one, just we can't get it. One God in three persons just cannot possibly make sense to us. And yet the Bible clearly describes it that way. The most obvious place you can see it in Matthew 3 in the baptism of Jesus, you know, he goes into the Jordan River with John the Baptist. And at the same time, you have Jesus the Son in the water being baptized. He hears the voice of God from heaven say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit is seen descending upon him. So in one picture, in three different places, the three different people appear all at the same time. So that makes it <laughs> even triply more hard to understand, it, but it, yet it's still a truth of the Bible. And I, as I said, I think it has to do with the omnipresence of God. We just we can't possibly understand it. You'll hear illustrations like, "Okay, wait a minute. I'm one person, but I'm a I'm a father. I'm a son. I'm a golfer." 
And that's kind of, you know, works, but it's really inadequate because that just kind of tells you some of the things I do or what my positions are. It doesn't really explain anything about the, the Trinity. So it's hard to understand. The best way is to understand it the way the Bible presents it. And the way the Bible presents the Trinity is according to function. So it presents God the Father as as the uh, sovereign God in heaven who has the plan, the will, and the decree. So God has a plan to redeem mankind, and it's his will that it happen, and he has decreed it to happen and the way that it will happen. And so God the Father, uh, he has the plan, the will, and the decree. And then God the Son comes and carries out the plan He's the active agent that carries out the plan of God. And the Holy Spirit is the one part of God that manifests the truth in our hearts, speaks to our hearts. His Spirit speaks to our spirit. And so uh, it's the best, best way to understand it is the way the Bible presents it, which is according to function. For, let's first talk about how we know that God exists. The traditional arguments, uh, you start off with what, this, what is called the rationalistic arguments. There's various ones of those. That, by rationalistic, we mean uh, by reason and not by what the Bible says, so outside of the Bible. You have the cosmological argument. The cosmos means the world. And so the idea is, well, the, the world, the creation that we live in exists. We know that it exists. And everything is caused by something. Something can't be caused by nothing. So things are, are, are caused, and it's a cause and effect world that we live in. You know, you can say, okay, what caused that? And you can go back, and what caused this, and what caused this? Eventually, you get back, you have to get back to an original cause, of course, which is the creator, God. So there has to be a cause for the cause, a designer creator. Just simple illustration of a watch, a man's walking, you're walking through a field, and you find a watch. And when you pick up the watch and examine it, what do you conclude? It was made by somebody. Somebody made this watch, and it was designed for a purpose to do something. So it had a maker. So that's the cosmological. The teleological, telos means design, is similar. It says the universe has a clear evidence of complexity, order, and design. So someone must have done that. It's way too much complexity in the universe, in the creation, to be some kind of random choice. It just can't be. The planets and the moons move with perfect accuracy in their orbits. Example, our own Earth. Our own Earth is traveling 67,000 miles per hour, exactly 93 million miles from the sun. So the Earth is rotating revolving around the sun at exactly 93 million miles, and it's moving at 67,000 miles per hour. If it was any closer to the sun, it, everything would melt. If it was any further away, everything would freeze. So it's perfect conditions for life where the sun is. And so the Earth is um, orbiting around the sun every 365 days, comes all the way around, 365.25 to be exact. 
and the Earth revolves in a counterclockwise direction around the sun while it also rotates in a counterclockwise direction around its own axis. So it's, it's rotating and it's also moving at the same time. It's also moving in the sense that it's tilting back and forth. And that tilt back and forth is what's causing our seasons, which are necessary for life to exist. And meanwhile, the moon is orbiting around the earth. And of course, that's where we get our, our light from at night. The sun reflects off of the moon, giving us light during the dark of the night. Uh, and the moon exerts on the earth a gravitational pull, which causes the tides in the ocean. This movement in the oceans, the tides, actually cleanses and enhances the conditions for life in the sea and also on land. Because, you, I, I didn't know this before, but all the pollution and all the junk that goes in our rivers goes out into the oceans, into that uh, salt water, and as the tides come back, back and forth, the salt and the tides cleanse the water, it evaporates, and then it goes on, you know, in the clouds onto earth and pours back down, what, clean, what, fresh water. So <laughs> everything works perfectly. It's incredible. It just couldn't have just happened that way. I mean, the odds are too great that all that happened by chance. Think of the human body. Talk about complicated. Talk about ordered. It's, it's incredible. Your brain has over 100 billion brain cells that all constantly communicate with each other. So we can function and do all the things, all the work that we do. It operates your body. Your central nervous system is an integrated information processing and control system that controls your body temperature, your blood pressure, your heart rate, your breathing, and all the other bodily functions. Uh, it's incredible. Yeah, it processes info, information about the world around you. It controls your physical movement. Uh, what you think, how you reason, your cognitive ability, uh, your walking, your talking, your standing, the whole deal. I mean, it's unbelievable. When you start studying the human body, the brain, I mean, even a hand has got, I don't know how many bones and they all work. To, it's just incredible. Point being, it's far too complex. The creation, the cosmos, our body, all of it together is just too complex to have possibly happened by chance. There had to be a designer, and that designer, of course, is God. Then you have the, the uh, moral law argument from moral law that without God, there is no absolutes in moral law. At best, moral laws would be relative and different for every culture. Everybody would have different moral laws, and you, know, you couldn't say that there were absolute moral laws. But because there are absolute moral laws for mankind, you know, a la the Ten Commandments, you know, murder, uh, theft, lying, uh, adult, you know, uh, rape, all these different laws that, that literally everyone considers absolute, then there must be a God behind them, right? Um, so there must be a God because of the laws that we have uh, different from the rest of the animal kingdom. We are created in man's, in God's image. Man is created in God's image and given that sense of those absolute moral values. And 
someone may say, well, there are relative laws. Laws are, you know, relative. There are no well, absolute moral laws. Every culture has, really. Uh, and, and so <laughs> you can ask that. The, if it's a woman, you can say, well, uh, would you say that women should be abused and, and threatened and, and murdered and uh, not make it legal that they can have a driver's license or vote? And you'd, all the women here would say, no way. That's right. I don't care where you are. Exactly. That's the point. That's an absolute moral law. Even though Saudi Arabia allows all that stuff, it doesn't make it right. It, the absolute moral law is, that, is the opposite of what Saudi Arabia is doing with women. So uh, you, you could transfer that. You could come up you know, with all the different things. It's murder where, you know, wherever you are, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So the absolute moral law judgment uh, is saying we exhibit the image of God through the conscience that we have, right? So Romans 2 says it, Paul says it well. He says, man shows the work of the law of God written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness. We have a conscience as opposed to the animal kingdom that, that doesn't have that. See, so this is the image of God in us. Uh, the next argument is called the human intuition argument, which is, you know, mankind, historically, as you study culture and anthropology, you see that every culture, historically, has always been incurably religious. Ecclesiastes 3, uh, 3.11, Solomon writes, God has set a sense of eternity in the hearts of men. We all have a sense of eternity. Romans 1.19, Paul says, God made himself known to us in our hearts. We have an innate sense that's within us that God exists. And we have a need to search for him and to know him. All right? So all this together is a pretty powerful argument. Alone, each one, you know, you could debate them. But all, the weight of all of them together uh, really uh, makes a lot of evidence for the existence of God. And then there's the argument from the scriptures. We have eyewitness accounts of 40 good, sincere men that wrote the Bible, all of which are giving eyewitness accounts and have internal evidence of the existence of God, right? So these men, these 40 different men who are well-respected, intelligent, that, peop and that people read about and from that we get our Bible, uh, <laughs> they risked death for what they were, were reporting. They were that sincere and that dedicated to it that they wrote it anyway. Example, Peter, the Apostle Peter, the big fisherman, right? If you look at 2 Peter, his epistle in the New Testament, 2 Peter 1, 16-21, Peter says, to his audience writing to the churches, we didn't tell cleverly devised tales like the Greeks. You know, they lived in a Greek world, a Greek culture in first century Mediterranean world. And he says, unlike the Greek, uh, you know, their mythology and their religions, we didn't come up with a bunch of cleverly 
uh, devised tales like the other world religions, but we made known to you that which we saw and heard. We were eyewitnesses. I mean, here's this guy, Peter. He's got tremendous credibility. And he was there and saw it, and he's testifying to it at risk of his own life. We saw and heard the glory of God, and God spoke. We heard him speak, affirming Jesus as his son. In the book of Exodus, God revealed himself clearly. You have them in slavery in Egypt at the time, Israel. And what does God do? He says, let my people go. And through the mighty acts of God, he did those ten miracles, the plagues against Egypt, the mighty acts of God. He has them released. He reveals himself through those mighty acts clearly. So much, so much that at the end, and he gives a purpose statement through the book of Exodus. I'm going to do this so that all will know that I am God. And then, of course, you have uh, in the Bible all the prophecies that are fulfilled are just incredible. Uh, and <laughs> the prophecy fulfillment, how could I, Isaiah know, if you look at Isaiah 53, how could he know all that information about the coming Messiah, that he was going to die as a vicarious sacrifice and carry the weight of sin for all mankind, on and on and on? How could he know that and write it all down 700 years before? Clearly, the information was coming from God. How did the prophets know that Jesus would be of the tribe of Judah, the family of David, born in Bethlehem, grow up and minister uh, in the Galilean region, and be a miracle worker, die by crucifixion, buried in a rich man's tomb, and be resurrected from the dead? How, how did he know all that? How did the prophets know all that? God revealed it. To them, How did Daniel in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, he revealed, he looked for knowledge uh, forward and said, there are going to be four great kingdoms, the Babylonian, and then the Persian, and then the Greek, and then the Roman Empire in the Mediterranean world. And he predicted that their coming and what they would do and how they would be sovereign over Israel at the time. So the, the biblical account prophecy fulfilled, the, the credibility of all these eyewitnesses. And then what about the attributes of God? If, as you study what they wrote in the Bible, you see the attributes of God. Who is this God that we worship and we, that we believe created all things? And you look at the, the main uh, themes of the attributes of God throughout the scriptures, and some of them jump out that we'll talk a little bit about. One, of course, that's important to us is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is throughout the scriptures. Jesus said that God the Father is sovereign. John 5, 19, Jesus, you know, this kind of tells you a little bit about the, the uh, Trinity as well. Jesus said, I came to do the will of God. So what I'm doing is the will of God, and I can do nothing of myself. It's all according to God's will. I do not seek my own will, but the will of God who sent me. In Exodus, we see God intervene in, in beginning in Exodus 3 when he appears to Moses and tells him what to do. Then he intervenes through the great 
uh, miracles. And in those incredible miracles that he, he did, he crushed not only the Egyptians, but he also revealed his sovereignty over all those Egyptian gods. You know, they had a God for everything, every part of nature, and for every vocation, they had a God. And in those ten miracles, you can see that God, the God of Israel, trumped every one of those gods, made it clear that they are non-existent, and he is God alone. And that was his purpose statement. When he did each one of those miracles, you can go back and look at it in the, in the book of Exodus. That's his purpose statement that what he was doing was going to reveal him literally to the whole world. And then at Mount Sinai, God revealed himself to the entire nation of Israel. We talked about that last week. Uh, they aligned, they were camped out in the plains right below Mount Sinai, and God came down and revealed himself, and it was just an incredible theophany or a God appearing to them and made himself known. And there was an earthquake, and they saw the glory, and they felt him and heard him, saw the glory, and God spoke to them. They heard him, and he gave them the Ten Commandments, his absolute moral law. So therefore, as we said, in Israel, three million, about three, two, three million people, there were no atheists that day. And of course, the Old Testament reports what they saw and heard. And it was so amazing, so awesome, so frightening that they begged Moses not <laughs> to let God do that again. Let him talk to you, Moses, and then you tell us what he said. So plenty of evidence within the Bible. The book of Job about the sovereignty of God. The book of Job is primarily about the sovereignty of God. People look at it so mysteriously, and normally when you think of Job, you normally think of the patience of Job. The patience of Job, you know, you hear that saying all your life. But the book is all about establishing the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is, is in view there. For 37 chapters, you know all that horrible stuff happens to Job, and for 37 chapters, he and his friends argue about why. And they ask all these different questions. Why did this happen to me? What did I do to deserve it? What is going on in the world around us? Why me? Why, 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 why? Finally, after 37 chapters of that, God finally answers. I don't think they're really expecting it. It kind of blows Job away. And God answers. Did he answer all the why questions? No. He gave them a theology lesson or a lesson about who God is. And it's all about God's sovereignty. So in those last five chapters, God says, uh, did you create all this? No. Were you there when? No. Did you have the plan? No. Only God does. God is absolutely sovereign, completely controls. And then the final ingredient is that God loves. So basically his message to Job is, look, you know that I am all sovereign and all powerful, and you also know that I love you and am, and am going to bless you. So the point being, you don't need to know. You wouldn't understand the why questions. You have, it's too much for you. You just need to know that God is sovereign and that God has your best interest at heart and that somehow in eternity, all this that you've been through is for the greater good and will end 
in an upright way. It's going to all work together for good. And so he finds out, Job finds out that it's all about the sovereignty of God and entrusting your life to him. And you also see the providence of God working throughout Scripture, great evidence of, you know, what is providence? The natural outworking of events and circumstances that in time result in God's will being carried out. So everyday happenings and circumstances and events in your life, in the lives of the biblical characters, somehow they all ended up working out according to God's will. So God is sovereign in the sense that uh, he brings about, you call it the providence of God. The greatest example of that, the most clear, is maybe in the life of Joseph in Genesis 37 through 50. God told Joseph, he said, uh, I love you and I'm going to make you the patriarch of Israel and I'm going to make you uh, the one who takes care of this family and saves it and all the brothers will uh, bow down to your authority in the very beginning, you know, he's like a teenager, you know, he's got that coat of many colors. Naturally, his brothers are, are very uh, angry about that, very jealous, and so what do they do? They beat him up, throw him in the pit, eventually sell him into slavery, he goes into slavery to Egypt. Meanwhile, if you're him, you're, what are you thinking? Why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? We'd all think that. He gets to Egypt, and he's the perfect slave, does incredible job for his master and for his good deeds, what does he get? The guy's wife lies about him and gets him thrown in a dungeon. And he spends like 10 years in this horrible dungeon. But it all worked out because he becomes eventually through all the providential events, the prime minister of Egypt, and during a terrible famine, he is able not only to save Egypt, but also his own people. He brings his own family to Egypt and gives them all the food they need to survive, etc., etc. And at the end, naturally, his brothers go, uh-oh, because they would want revenge if somebody did this to them. They go, he's going to get us now. We're in his power now. He's going to kill us. And you have this great uh, passage in Genesis 50, verse 19 and 20, Joseph says, don't fear, don't worry about it. Look, I'm not God. And everything that happened, God did for a purpose. You guys meant it for evil, maybe, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve this family alive. So it's all according to God's plan and uh, his sovereignty. Jonah the story of Jonah and the whale, you know, they think, uh, oh, that's all about this whale. Well, you, it escapes your notice that there's only two verses in four chapters about a whale. The fact is the book of Jonah is about the sovereignty of God. And it, even more, it's about the sovereignty of God interacting with the free will of man. It's one of those profound questions that we all have and can't adequately explain. How can God be completely sovereign and we can still have free will and be held accountable? Well, you see it in the book of Jonah. God decrees that the gospel be preached to this evil city, Nineveh. Nineveh the Ninevites, the Assyrians, were enemies of Israel. And Jonah and all of his countrymen hated them. 
terribly and feared them as well. And here God was telling him to go there. So, like all of us with free will, even though God said, go to Nineveh, what did Jonah do? He went the opposite direction, got on a boat and tried to go over to Europe. Because he hated those guys. Didn't want those guys taken care of and forgiven by God. And he knew God was gracious and loving and so that it might happen. So he went the opposite direction. Well, again, the providence of God, what happens? Jonah made his decision, his free will decision. Go the other way, disobey. Well, it just so happens out in the boat, there's a storm at sea, Right? There's this terrible storm that stops the boat. And the boat crew finds out that it's, you know, because this guy's disobeying God, so they chunk him overboard. And the whale swallows him. Why would God fix something crazy like this to happen? Well, you know, it's probably because Jonah's such a tough nut to crack. He's so incredibly stubborn that it took three days of pain and suffering inside that whale for him to finally repent. After It'd take me about 30 seconds. <laughs> this guy's so tough, it took him three days, and he finally said, okay, I'm ready to go to Nineveh now. <laughs> and so then God providentially used this whale as a transport system to take him back <laughs> where he was supposed to be all along. Net result, an awesome great event occurred which blessed Jonah greatly. He literally became the greatest evangelist ever. And the whole city was converted in a couple of days using eight words. <laughs> and the guy wasn't even trying, right? So God used his free will to bring about something wonderful. Another uh, couple, three attributes of God that we're all aware of is God's omnipotence, his omniscience, and his omnipresence. God is uh, all-knowing, all-powerful, and he's everywhere all at the same time. Psalm 139 does a great job of uh, explaining that and, and, and expressing that. Uh, Psalm 139, verse 1 through 6, it says, God knows everything about us and everything we think, everything we'll do, uh, even what we will say in advance. God knows everything. And then verse 7, 12, he says, God is everywhere. If you're trying to hide from God, where do you think you can go? It doesn't matter whether you're at, uh, on land, out at sea, or up in the air. He is there. God is with us wherever we are, Night or day, inside or out, God is there. And then verse 13 through 16, God has the power. God has made everything. Everything that is, God has made. He has power over everyone and everything. He creates. He sustains. He has ordained even the days of our lives. All powerful. And then, of course, the thing that's near and dear to our heart, the attribute of God, God's love. All important for us, God's love is unconditional and sacrificial. Only God has that kind of love. We don't have that. Our love is always conditional. You know, you're nice to me, you treat me right, vice versa, right? But God's love 
is unconditional and sacrificial. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love. What is the perfect demonstration of unconditional sacrificial love? Uh, he did that. He demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So he didn't wait around for us to get good or to do something right. He died for us while we were sinners. That's unconditional love. And Jesus sacrificed himself for us. John 3.16, what, mo what motivated God to send his only son into the world and to go through all that trouble and problems and suffering and pain that Jesus went through. What motivated God to do that? John 3.16, you've heard it a million times. For God so loved the world. That's why he did it. Because of his love. For God so loved the world. And what did his love accomplish? That whoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have eternal life. So the love of God is not only unconditional sacrificial, it's also effective. It accomplishes something wonderful and great, the love of God. So, in conclusion, joke, a man uh, wanted to work in the zoo, and he went uh, to the zoo and, and asked to be employed, and they said, well, you know, we don't have any uh, openings for you. But it just so happens that our gorilla died. So we have bought a gorilla suit. Would you be interested in putting the gorilla suit on and making people think that, our, that we still have a gorilla? So you go out there and act like a gorilla and we'll pay you, you know, some good money. I guess the guy's thought it over and says, you know, I'm a pretty good athlete. I think I can handle that. So they make him up and he puts on the suit and he does a great job of being a gorilla. Nobody knows about it. They've sworn him to secrecy and everybody at the zoo. So he beats his chest. He eats bananas. He swings on the rope. And he started swinging on the rope so well that one day he overdid it and the rope swung up. He threw him over the side of the fence into the lion's cage. Scared to death, he started yelling, Help! Help! The lion jumped on him. And then the lion said, Be quiet! We'll all get fired. <laughs> and you know, in the Bible, uh, going back to the book of Daniel, in the Bible, King Nebuchadnezzar was like that. He, he became an animal. This guy was the most ruthless tyrant in the world at that time. Powerful, conquering, warrior, really a, a, a rough guy. And you find his testimony in Daniel 4. By the providence of God, he was literally became insane and he began acting like an animal. He lived in the, out in the pasture and he ate grass and he just lost his senses. See? And so Daniel 4 tells his testimony. This proud, vain, ambitious man became completely humiliated through this mental illness that he had, and it lasted seven years. At the end of it, his senses came back to him, and this proud, ambitious man learned the hard way about the truth of God. He <laughs> finally said, Okay, Lord, I get it. 
And now the king wanted the whole world to know who the one and only God is. And that's what Daniel 4 is. It's Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. His witness to the supremacy, the sovereignty of God. Why was the mightiest, most powerful man in the world now worshiping the God of a small, conquered nation like Israel? Naturally, before he thought, our gods are the greatest, and we, now he realizes that the God of this little tiny country that's been conquered by him is actually the one and only God, and he gives testimony to it there in Daniel 4. God had made the king act like the godless animal that he is and was so he could become the spiritually alive witness for God. Again, the providence of God. His insanity seemed like a horrible thing, I'm sure, to his family, but it, it resulted in the greatest good, which is his salvation. And so Nebuchadnezzar is the Old Testament example of God's unconditional love. He loved that guy? That's beyond our imagination that you could love a guy like that. But God loved him, and through his unconditional love, he displayed his justice in disciplining him that way, but also his love at the same time. The ultimate act of God's love and God's justice is seen, of course, in the New Testament and the life of Christ. Jesus paid the price for our sins, therefore justice was done, right? And the reason Jesus came was because of the love of God. So God loved us, so he sent Jesus, and Jesus brought justice as well. So what act can you think of that could possibly bring those two together? I mean, most people think it's either one or the other, you know? There's either justice or there's forgiveness, right? There's either love or there's hate, however you want to put it. But in the atoning work of Christ on the cross, both of those, the love of God and the justice that God requires, come together in the same person and in the same act on the cross, all for our benefit and our salvation. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us. Thank you so much for revealing yourself to us, not only in the creation, but also in our heart, in our own spirit, and also in your word that we read and study and tells us so much about you and your attributes. We praise you, Lord, and we pray that you continually illuminate your word for us as we study the Bible. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.